All right, everyone. This is the introductory pod for uh, the Gen Pod between myself and George Ackerman, who is a baby boomer, maybe on the fringe there, uh, with the Greatest Generation, and then myself, a millennial, right in the right in the heart of it, born 1992. Various perspectives here on the spectrum. I'm naive and young, and facing a trashed planet. And uh, uh, abysmal politics, and George has a life lifelong uh, perspective on all sorts of things. George, Is yeah, but true? we didn't we didn't really cause any of it. We just kind of watched it all happen. That was the unfortunate thing of being a boomer. We kind of, you know, we thought we were doing a lot in the '60s and '70s, and. Uh, what happened at the end of the day when you wake up this morning and read the newspaper is what we really did was elected all these people are sitting in Congress who don't do anything other than stay Congress people a long time and pass a lot of bills, which are all for their self-aggrandizement, maybe, for their pensions. And they want everybody. It's it, it's For an old hippie, it's hard because they want everybody to be a 1099 and a 1099 employee but not them they're all going to be they're all going to get pensions and benefits and medical insurance and all that kind of thing it's a, it's a really remarkable circle we've gone around in in and stuff you, and you've seen a lot uh, over the years right what's your uh, you know what was the genesis of George Ackerman well, George, George Ackerman, you know, grew up as a spoiled kid in Southern California and all that goes with that, which was pretty good, which we'll, we'll let you know about as time goes by. But it was pretty remarkable. But we've gone from, we're in a whole nother place today. So today we're talking about whatever we're going to talk about. But I spent 30 days once when I was in college, see, sleeping on the roof. This is my original perspective, sleeping on the roof of my fraternity. Because I sensed that Jim Morrison, the lead singer of The Doors, wrote a song called Waiting for the Sun. And I thought if I would just be awake every morning for the sun to come up, I would achieve eternal wisdom. Didn't work out. But that's where I'm coming from. I've, I've been there and now I'm here. Kind of befuddled by the whole state of everything. Yeah, and here I am, 28 years old. I'm in the military now. And when we met, of course, I wasn't. I wasn't even going that direction. I met uh, you as a, a mentor and, and client in, when I was in business school in Charleston. Yes. And you abandoned me to seek to seek the, the military world. But truth be told, I mean, you've gotten an incredible education and a wonderful perspective. And uh, But your mind is still really open and ready to look forward and think about what might be or better yet what could be which is why i think you're so phenomenal yeah that's good <laughs> stuff and we've had fun in the business uh for the business bit but what happened is when we would work together we'd end up having a a three-hour long business meeting where two and a half hours of it we're talking about politics or or, or some other subject uh yeah, why is this whole thing messed up? Why is, you know, why, I mean, how does, how do things end up the way they are? I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible. But so be it. 
So today, my wife turned me on. My wife is a college professor and little Lucy. And and we went to college together. And now we're living in we live in we we used to live until yesterday in downtown Charleston. And now we're living in a Marriott residence hotel. <laughs> yeah, waiting for our house to be finalized. Finished, I guess you call it. But it's something to do. Lou gave me a uh, podcast to listen to called Rabbit Hole. And this is kind of the quintessence of, I think, my curiosity and Peter's curiosity. The Rabbit Hole is by the New York Times. And it's the story of how QAnon kind of happened. And it kind of happened on purpose, but not on purpose the way you might think. It happened because... In fact, Google knew exactly what they were doing. As and and they it wasn't enough just to send people to on YouTube things that they had been watching before. They had to like they they could figure out through their algorithms what they would like if they showed them something else. And so they it almost became a drug. The discovery, yeah, this uh, uh Discovery drug. Yeah. You know, where, is gonna, where is this going to take me to next? It's deciding my fate for me. Here we go. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in a world where you know everybody in your mind and you end up in this place. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you're in the process of being radicalized. On like what my age? grandparents. Are they really? Are you grandfather? Oh, yeah. I got at least one radical. He's not technically related to me by blood, but only through marriage. Radical as in Dr. Fauci and Bill Gates went to college together at Yale. They shared a dorm. They conceived of the uh, SARS COVID coronavirus. And uh, and the whole plot is the microchip and the vaccine plot, the new, you know, and it's, that's the rabbit hole they've gone down, and they believe, and he believes it at least, and it's scary. Well, it shouldn't be scary because as an old fella, I mean, I think that it's gotten to be politics and all of this stuff is almost like religion. It's almost nonsensical to argue about it because people really believe it. That's the scary part of it. But on the other hand, it's just kind of, <laughs> some unfortunate perspective on faith. Well, it, most of the radicalization has occurred on Facebook. From my perspective, YouTube was a little bit of it, the uh, QAnon stuff, but the grandparents, that's where they got radicalized. The father, that's where he's getting radicalized. I mean, it's the Facebook uh, meme culture and the memes are, are viral. There's a vi- virality to the, the simple words that convey a fact, which is not a fact with a picture that might not even be, it could be a deep fake. It could just be a bad Photoshop. It doesn't matter. The grandparents can't tell because they're 75 years old, but yet they believe it. And then they go vote on it. Scary. I was talking to my daughter the other day, yesterday, who's, uh, I mean, she's your age. She's the same as you, a little older. And we're looking at the stuff, the, 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 the giant ship in the Suez Canal stuck in the mud. And she looks at it and she says, that's meme bait. That's all it is. It's a giant ship. And you have these giant chains, uh, cranes that look look as if they're like little box toys. 
<laughs> next to it. And they're going to use those things to move the ship. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, that's the thing with the memes. There are so many great memes that you can enjoy and they're, they're, they're funny and they're cultural and they're trendy, but then there's the destructive memes the, the those are the bad memes. And in 2018, I saw a meme go around with who was, remember the Supreme Court, uh, uh, pers- the Supreme Court nominee who was accused of rape and his accuser was a, um, do you remember what her name was? Clarence she was blonde. Anita something. No, 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 not the nine, not oh. the, not the 1980s or 1990s episode, the, the recent one, 2018. 2018. Oh, yeah, the guy. Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, what was the guy just now? Yeah, I'm too. I'm I'm old. I can't. Should have googled it before we got in the pod. But but there was a photoshopped in uh, photo of her with Bill Clinton as if it was some conspiracy theory to frame him for rape when he got uh, nominated for the Supreme Court in 2018, and that went viral as a fact to many people in your generation, and they believed it. Very disheartening. That's the kind of viral memes I think need to go away. So in 2018, I made a change.org petition that only got like 330 signatures, but it said ban memes on Facebook until they can figure out how to stop disinformation and memes because it was always traveling during or always traveling through the memes. And that was around the same time there was a there was uh, there was massacres in Burma uh, because they they literally read on Facebook that these other people were coming to kill them when they weren't. It was just disinformation and people were actually dying and Facebook wasn't doing anything about it. All that to say, Facebook's the real devil here, in my opinion, when it comes to the radicalization. Well, I mean, since, uh, well, I mean, Google, I mean, I think Google is even bigger. Is a, I'm bigger. I mean, they've, they've got YouTube, which is, a, I mean, they just, they're these gigantic, these gigantic enterprises that really, the more they can expand the places you go, the more money they make. And I think at the end of the day, the guys sitting at the top of the pyramid in those businesses are just really capitalists. Neither, maybe at one point, these guys had an idea that, you know, we'll change the world and we're we're not greedy capitalists. But I think we're far from that with their jets and houses and everything else they've got. And now they just find that everything is clickbait to them. No? What's the perspective on the the Google... The Google work um, with artificial intelligence and the defense sector, and then the the all the employees that refuse to work on any defense applications for their technology, because that would I mean that would uh, that would uh, shine this the CEO as a capitalist. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I think that that's I mean it's inevitable if. AI is inevitable. It's going to come around in one thing or another. What's what's not inevitable is that it doesn't have to lead to mass unemployment. Everybody doesn't have to lose their job because, you know, a machine can drive a truck. And I think before, we're really good at passing laws as to do X, Y, and Z in America. But when it comes to really enforcing them and making something good happen and look around the corner, which is a wonderful attribute of great executives and people that are really good, we might want to consider if we're going to make for, I mean, just to regress in terms of AI, if we're going to, if we're going to put three and a half million people out of work who drive trucks, what are we going to do with those people? 
Are we just, what are we going to do? What do we expect them to do going forward? Because that's a big slug of folks. Do we expect them to protest and get angry and start throwing stuff? Or do we expect them just to sit around and say, boy, I've had a really good life. I, I have no retirement or no nothing, but thank you for the nice time. It's a really complex problem. And we don't talk about that. We just keep going ahead with what's, you know, what are we going to do with AI? And Congress doesn't talk about it. Our presidents don't talk about it. Our governors don't talk about it. We don't talk about it as a citizenry. We talk about where's the next cool meme we can shoot out to either embarrass somebody or give us give ourselves and our friends a laugh. Am I crazy? Well, yeah. No, I'm not crazy. No one does think about the impacts of all. I mean, trucking is like a good fallback career for, for I mean, it's also well-paying. It pays great. My little brother wanted to be a trucker for a while because, you know, he didn't want to go to school and he didn't have an interest in anything besides just hanging out. And he could hang out inside of a truck and see the country. I mean, it sounded good to him. I think you can make a decent living. You can make a really good living, but you got you work like a dog and stuff. I mean, trucking's a big deal. Three and a half million people. It's like the biggest, it's like one of the biggest industries in America today. But the only editorial comment I'd throw in was that maybe government employees are bigger, but be that as it may. But I mean, those are the things that we need to kind of figure out that I'm like, we're frustrated. I mean, I think, I think we do a really good job of identifying problems and stuff like that. And we do a less than very good job in coming up with any solutions. I mean, we've had so many, I mean, my God, I was, I mean, as a child of the 70s, 60s and 70s and Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society and the Voting Rights Act and everything like that, big, big programs that came and passed and were important. And yet they've had some kind of positive impact on the culture over the last 50 years, but in general, nothing's really changed. So how, I agree. We saw how, that in uh, in summer in June with all the rioting when it all started back then. You know, it was a similar type of, of of feeling there. Exactly. So if if you're if you're a longtime Congress, and we have a guy down here in South Carolina who really, God bless him, he's a good man, got uh, Joe Biden elected. Which sorry, we're going to show our colors now. We're we're glad of that. But he runs a district that we call the Corridor of Shame. <laughs> it's by any metric you want to measure anywhere. His district performs very poorly, very poorly. And yet he's been elected over. He's been a congressman for 40 years or thereabouts. And yet his people just get hammered every year. And he's doing quite nicely. But unlike a lot of the guys... This particular congressman is not a multimillionaire. I mean, he hasn't really got up to the trough. He just hasn't accomplished much, but he gets elected all the time. But he does have a very bizarrely shaped congressional district that they keep gerrymandering to make gerrymandering to make sure he keeps getting elected, which is an incredible accomplishment in South Carolina to get a Democrat elected. Yeah, unto itself by by just I mean he's got a it, it, he's got a hundred mile long Frickin' congressional district. <laughs> yeah, that's awful. <laughs> it's crazy. We always look at that, I feel like, in my generation and wonder, how the hell did that start? 
I mean, when did gerrymandering start? Is that always a thing going back through your time? No, I don't, I don't even, I don't ever remember. I mean, for a long time, we couldn't figure out how, how states, how they figured out how many congressmen a state got. I mean, except, you know, how many, how, how, how does, how is it going to work out? And then, you know, we, we know the deal, we know with the deal with senators, everybody gets two. And somehow based on the census, then they would like throw in the congressman and say, oh, look, New York's the biggest state, so they get 40 congresspeople or whatever. And then the guys met in a, smoked a lot of cigarettes and met in a cold, uh, you know, some kind of room and drank whiskey and smoked cigarettes and decided, okay, this is, this is a district, this is a district, this is another district. Because the states write the districts, right? The state legislature. I pretty think. much, yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Actually, I mean, I, I think it, it's one of those things that varies from state to state exactly how they do it and how often they change it. And uh, But like everything else in life, it's in somebody's best interest to do it that way. Right. Because here's a geoism. No one ever does anything that's not in their own self-interest. And, yeah, and for the audience, the geoism, you know, George goes by geo. So a geoism, to define that, is an adjective for a, for a way to describe something that is unique to geo, which is usually something that's completely true. Oftentimes, well, it has the benefit of a grain of truth in it. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere. If you looked at it through my eyes, you would think it was true. But, I mean, I think that's sort of the state of the world, isn't it? I mean, I don't think I don't think that ever, just to regress, that Google ever thought they were trying to radicalize right wing people in with their with their algorithms in the growth of QAnon. And yet, by sending them down the rabbit hole of trying of looking for family and people that thought like them and and to get more clickbait and build a business and be able to sell more eyes that's what ended up happening and another it should almost be one of the 10 commandments the law of unintended consequences it really should so should they have seen it coming well if they're that freaking smart i would think so I mean, <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> I mean, isn't that it? The, uh, you know, there's so many great business leaders in the world and stuff. And and one of them said that you know the most important thing about, in the head of an organization is to have the ability to look around corners. And I think a lot of our people are really you know business leaders today. They were and politicians. They work hard. They're smart. They're intelligent. They've gone to good schools. They've done everything, but they think very in a very linear manner. They're, they don't have the ability to look around corners and see into the future. And uh, it it it's you can't be that myopic in things. And I will regress from that for another thing. By the way, the world is not flat. You cannot run a country if you don't have factories and don't have places for people to work in good, high-paying jobs. Because people with good, high-paying jobs buy lots of stuff. And when the citizenry buys lots of stuff, then it just has a wonderful effect on the entire economy. And that people have great opportunity to see their businesses grow, their lifestyle increase, 
all sorts of good things happen when you have more jobs than you have people to fill them and good jobs. Can you imagine? This is, I mean, I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, but there was a time when all of those factory workers in Detroit were buying like trailers and RVs and pick them up trucks and going on vacation and just, I mean, pumping that whole economy where everybody was just, it was phenomenal. And everybody, and they were able to make cars that people liked. Unfortunately, some guys screwed it up and <laughs> they didn't make quality for very long. But that's the boss's fault. They have to, to keep the business going. They have to have a incredible eye and determination, just a, an, an incredible desire to never have anything go wrong. But that's for another, that's a, yet another podcast. Or well, that, that brings me yeah, uh, uh, as part of the business conditions in which the choices are made. I sent you the, the website today, uh, WTF happened in 1971 com, which is really interesting. I've seen this website a couple of times at uh, different points over the last few years, but it's basically like every graph when it has to deal with economics or politics in this country has an inflection point. And it was generally 1971 where things then suddenly skew into some type of an unsustainable uh, trend. It all happens in that year. Uh, lots of theories on it though, but of course, Bretton Woods was the major thing that happened around that time. Um, very interesting. What happened in 1971, George? Well, first of all, I graduated from college, so. <laughs> <laughs> which much to many people's surprise, <laughs> including my own. But the 71 was, I mean, in 70, 69 or 70, we, we, we shut down the colleges, every one of them in America over Kent State University and the shootings in Kent State. And I think we were coming out of the 60s and love peace and stop war and things. I mean, we were an incredibly optimistic kind of people. But we had also seen the Kennedys die. And we also put up a, can a candidate in George McGovern, I believe, who suffered the worst presidential life loss in the history of all history. I mean, it was just, we thought he was fabulous and uh, nobody else did. Nobody else got the memo about what a game-changing thing that would be. We weren't, so I think what happened is at that point in time, there were a lot of great ideas that came out, but they were not even well executed, let alone, you know, flawlessly executed. They were just kind of thrown out there and, People had their way about them. It was more important to be Hunter Thompson and be sitting there in the up in the mountains of Aspen, you know, writing writing great prose and from and 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 having a party every night and forgetting what you discussed and discovered the night before because you were a mess. As I kind of flow back into the uh, what you said about baby boomers in the beginning, where you just kind of watched it all happen. Oh my God, we're having a party. Yes. And I really, you know, when you think about, you, you, I, I talk about, you know, we talk and we, we talk about people and we talk about, I mean, I, I listened to another, oh my God, there's this uh, new, there's a, yet another podcast called All In. Have you listened to it? Yeah. Yeah. This, I started about in October, I think I started listening to it. Yeah. With a bunch of just, I mean, money hungry <laughs> stock guys and money people. 
but it's really, and they just did a whole thing. They were talking about uh, Megan and Harry and, but only as a vehicle to talk about achievement versus entitlement. And I think starting in 19, the seventies, sixties and seventies, we, we never, we never had a, no one, there was no sense of entitlement anywhere. There was a sense of achievement. And, uh, these guys talked about it the other day. It's like, how did we get there? Where everybody just thought, let me, let me, let me go to school. I think I can, I'm going to borrow about $250,000 in, in, in debt. And, uh, I'm going to make $80,000 a year. And, uh, I'm going to have, $25,000 in payments and I'm going to be done with those payments by the time I'm 54 <laughs> and, and it's, but it's all going to be good. Well, it's not, <laughs> it's, it's an economic model that doesn't make any sense. And, but they kind of, I mean, I, I just versus the greatest generation who actually in a, in, a, in a mindset that is hard for me to fathom and has always been hard for me to fathom, willingly signed up, dropped what they were doing, joined the military, not to join the military, but to go fight a war, to risk their lives. They didn't know whether they were coming back or not. It was pretty phenomenal. And now, fast forward, we, you know, I think there are, you know, our... Um, if your kid doesn't get a trophy just for being on the soccer team, you're a little pissed off. It's just an amazing, it requires a much deeper and longer conversation as to how did, how did that happen? You know, like it's, 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 and they were talking on all in like, okay, so you went to college. Now I'm entitled to this, that, and the other thing and stuff that's supposed to happen. But are you, I mean, is it, who's not introspective enough? Who didn't, who didn't, who didn't think about it enough? Does that make any sense? It does. I think the, off, the, the gripe is, you know, how much what did school cost for you in 1971? Once you graduated, I mean, what was the total cost versus how does that compare to the cost of me going to the same school and graduating with the same degree adjusted for inflation? I mean, how many multiples is it different? Probably 10 at least. I, I can't even I can't even begin. I think I think a, a year's education at where I went to school at the University of Spoiled Children, also known as the University of Southern California. Uh, I guess, yeah. I mean, the problem is you need a lot of you know. I mean, no. There's no matter what you do, X amount of the people end up X, and, and the, the pyramid doesn't change sizes. Unless you can do away with the pyramid as a model, I don't know how you how you really get anywhere because in the bell curve, you got 64% of the people in the middle, right? You got 16, you got eight, you got two, that's it, 64, 64 in the middle. So to, to, to work your way you know, out of the 32, so in, and the mean, right in the middle there. So you got 32% above it and 32% below it. And that's like the middle. So it's rather exceptional if you want to go on the upside to then get to the 16% that's, you know, you would consider upper moderate, let alone be the 2% on the far end that are exceptional. 
So it's a very difficult model unless you can flatten everything out. I don't know the answer, but some people think that it's a better idea to flatten everything out. I've never, I'm too old to grasp that thought or to really embrace it. I think. I guess the thoughts may be less school. Let the, you know, the 64% doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't feel required to go to school in order to have a a 64% life, but that's what the, the standard is. The alternatives would be like a vocational education or a, like a specialized, maybe computer coding education would be you know less than less than a four year degree, but uh, would allow you to to not take on the burden of being in the sixty four percent. Which USC tuition, undergraduate tuition, is fifty eight thousand dollars a year. I just looked it up. Uh, a year. Yes. <laughs> Must be nice. It's, I, but you, you can mask. But in 1971, I wonder it was probably like it was probably like twelve hundred dollars. It probably was. I think it was like four or five thousand dollars. I remember hearing at the time. But of course, I was on the dole, so <laughs> so that's a whole nother that's a that's a whole nother discussion. But yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so puzzling to me. Even if you decided you wanted to work your ass off, if you do not have a really, uh, you got to have a lot of new jobs to fund to fund the big metal middle class. Because wasn't it was it was Margaret Thatcher or something? I mean. Socialism is a wonderful thing until the last guy runs out of money. And then what do you do? And that's, I mean, I think that sometimes we think that can happen. So right now, so I'm, I'm an old fella, Social Security, Medicare, stuff like that. Every one of those things I paid into as an employer and as a and as a worker. And I added up the other day, just FYI, uh, how much I paid in to like Medicare myself and how much as an employer or employee or whatever. And it's equal. You pay like two and a half percent. So together it's like five or six percent for freaking ever. So for 50 years. If you had if you had my kind of life, you paid in a lot of money. Five <laughs> percent of everything I made over time in total, which is a would certainly pay for USC. But if you're a gig employee today, <laughs> if you're a 1099 employee, I'm fearful that you're you're gonna you're gonna get old. And you're not going to have. There's going to be no uh, backstop for for to take care of your health or even for you to pay your bills. Yeah, there's going to be nothing there for for my my people. I think we've determined. I think the social security is going to die off in somewhere in 2040 range. Isn't that correct? There's some. It's just unsustainable where well, we're at. It could all die. On- it should all die off tomorrow because I think the reality is is that they say you know they're borrowing money from Social Security. Well, the government's borrowing it. They just take that money and go spend it on something else. But if you're left with like, <laughs> it's like me having a loan from my grandchildren. <laughs> the idea, the idea that they're ever going to get it is neither here nor there. But 
Yeah, so now we borrow. It's financial manipulation. We borrow money from, there is no trust fund for Social Security and Medicare. It's not like sitting in a, in a, in a Goldman Sachs money fund where they're managing it and they've just, it's gone up 20% this year. No, it's, a, it's, a, it's an IOU. The government took it and, and, and did something with it. Bought somebody a nice new airplane or something. Who knows? But looking for, so what are you going to do with that part of the society? Everybody, everybody's on a 1099 gig. What makes what, what I get frustrated about is that our representatives, our government wants everybody to be a 1099 employee and they're not. They're, 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 they found a way to do really well with get pensions and healthcare and drivers and cars and it's the damnedest thing. But so it's like they're, we're cross purposes in a way, maybe, aren't we? We're not all in this together, I don't think. Is there a uniform vision for America as to what we, we can't even decide what we want it to be? Is it a is it a melting pot or is it or yeah. is it or you know what the hell is it at this an aggregation point? of winners and losers is what it's looking like it's gonna be, or maybe even has been. Seems to me we always had winners and losers. We just seems to me we used to treat the losers better. Yeah. I mean and I don't know, maybe the, maybe the winners were kinder, maybe. I don't know. So what but, does that mean? Do we, do we need more taxes? No, I think how do we, we... How do we treat the losers better? From my perspective, I think a lot of people in my generation would say that we just should take on more obligation uh, to take care of the losers. Doing that would be spending more, and we can't really go into any more debt, right? $30 trillion, so... Why not? I don't know. Can we? Are we going to prescribe to that, that modern, modern monetary theory and just dole it out? I think you can make a case that China's been doing it for about 20 years and it's working out pretty good for them. You know, you just turn on the printing presses and make money. I mean, that's, that's one could make a case that that's the success of Bitcoin right now. Is it as a fixed... We think, nobody really knows what it is, but you think it's a fixed number of Bitcoin. But no other currency in the world has a fixed value, as it were. So Bitcoin has gone from what? $5,000, $10,000 this year to touched on $60,000 for a cup of coffee? Because it's a finite, it's finite. It's not like a money supply. We have no idea. I mean, nobody, we have no idea how much, you know, how much money the governments of the world decide to print. Yeah, it's, it's limited. It's, it appears to be, and, and with, with no recourse. Because recom- <laughs> the, the prior would have been a gold back system, right? That's the last time. I mean, people compare Bitcoin to gold all the time. So if, the, if Bitcoin is like the new gold, well, gold, you could always just mine more of it. And I think it's not even that rare of a, a a mineral gold no it just gets um, it gets more and more rare but more and more expensive to get out of the dirt yeah whereas mathematically bitcoin is like proven to have a finite number of coins so it's like instantaneously knowable it's not like you're gonna you're gonna be mining for oil and then suddenly discover a uh 
a shoot of gold um, and have a gold rush, which would change. So Bitcoin is a little bit more stable in that regard, huh? Well, except I think you may have been telling one of those big lies that nobody really knows, since nobody knows where it is, how in the vault, the, the Bitcoin vault, nobody knows how many units of currency there are in Bitcoin. And where are they? Because <laughs> it's never, it's, it's never, the blockchain has never been fully realized. I can, can usually track it. The, the, I can track it mentally. I usually fall off somewhere around. There's like <laughs> vaults of Bitcoin in, in Switzerland, in, in underground, disconnected, you know, air-gapped server rooms that store the currency in there. And then, then I get lost. That's where I lose it. But generally, yeah, I agree. You but know, if it, it is exists, nebulous, if, if that exists, it doesn't exist from those who created Bitcoin. It exists from those who bought it. And, and, are, and are holding on to it as a unit of, of value. So, I mean, you know, if we were all to wake up on Thursday and say, eh, it's an intellectual hoax. <laughs> there was never anything. But I, this was fun, wasn't it? It's incredible. So, so in your genesis of life, though, you've seen lots of different things. And usually there's a first generation of something, a second generation of something. And then it gets better and better with each iteration. Is that a similar type of trajectory for Bitcoin? Because Bitcoin will have been the first. Maybe Ethereum is the second, or maybe there will be a third one. That will be the real winner. That's where you'd want to put your place your bets. Or, or maybe that's not true. I think you have to figure out the rationality of the market first. You have to figure out, like, why... This is the this is the problem. Why why do we have this this new kind of monetary system? <laughs> Perhaps because the governments of the world are excuse me, fucked up and can't seem to manage their own system. But it's like any other business. It's not who has the idea. It's who really makes money from it. And yes, somebody's going to come along with a really trackable, understandable, fungible, worldwide currency that cannot be manipulated by whatever, however, all of these things get manipulated by, especially, you know, country to country currencies. And yes, it'll, it'll happen. It's almost unstoppable now because you, it's hard to have faith in the currency and the and the good offices of the countries that are that are printing this stuff, Don't which you is think? why yeah yeah because Bitcoin is is a perfect use case in a country like Lebanon, which uh which which the annual inflation last year in 2020 was 84.9 percent. A loaf of bread is 400 times more expensive now than it was a year ago. If you were in cryptocurrency, though, that wouldn't be the case for 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 those poor people. So that's a well, perfect that's an example. But it could be if if you actually had. I mean, my only real experience with inflation was with gasoline in like the mid seventies when you'd line up for twenty four hours to get gas for your car, and it, and the price of gas went from like twenty nine cents to four dollars a gallon or something like that. But there was a real Inflation, inflation really is is just a measure of the cost of the cost of really the raw, the raw materials and stuff like that, or in a shortage of labor, what it's going to cost to get people to come out to work. 
and to get them to go to one factory to another factory or one office to another office or something. Then it becomes inflated for no reason. But we've never been in a system. I mean, even the systems that, you know, have, have these, these, you know, these countries that have like melted down from inflation and they had to like redo their currency have never really just gone away. They just kind of created a new currency, truth be told, and off we go, do it again. And it works out. So after all my years on earth, which thank God, I, and I hope there are more, nothing surprised. I mean, I, 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 I have a far more positive or open-minded point of view of to where it's all going to end up because it just doesn't seem to end. <laughs> Human beings seem to have an amazing capacity to keep going. Adapt. Yeah, adapt and keep going and be happy and be successful at the end of the day. At the end of the day, people get together at night, they laugh, they smile, they do whatever they do, and they go and then they go out and try to do something good again the next day. It's really kind of remarkable. That is an interesting generational perspective. I think that kind of shows our two sides. From your perspective, that could explain a lot of people in your generation's outlook on the problems. Climate change will adapt. You know, maybe that's not yours, but that's a perfect example of one that'd be like, uh, we'll figure out a way, you know, there's no need for to, to worry about it now. We'll, we'll, <laughs> well, we'll figure out a way to survive. Ocean's up two more feet. It's fine. Uh, uh, hurricanes <laughs> 16 times a year. It's fine. We'll adapt. And that's that's true. I think in my generation, we don't have that perspective yet. We don't have that. Well, because I, I, we, I, I, I mean, I would say. We've well, never adapted. First, first of all, I want to say. I believe in climate change, and I believe the world is going through a lot of things. I don't think there's much you can do about it in real life. And I think the world is going to be fine, but the people may be dead. <laughs> I mean, we may, be, we may die, and we may come back, but you're going to die anyway, <laughs> one way or another. So why are you getting so – why is everybody so exercised about it? I mean, really? I mean, I think I think there's a sense that it is a, is uh, you can change the trajectory, well, and why wouldn't you? Because the things that you want to do are so capital intensive and so blue sky. I mean, for you can't make a lithium, you can't make batteries anywhere in the world but China today. So, and they don't want to make them for the world. <laughs> You can't make you can't make batteries in America. We got no raw material. Now maybe the, you can't the, it, you can't you can't make a hydrogen car. Although hydrogen is probably the best hydrogen is probably the best fuel there is to make a car because it just you just make it from water. But the processing of it is really requires a lot of natural gas, so it becomes expensive and it's very very difficult. This is this is why it becomes such a good opportunity, though, because you like you said at the beginning, we have the three point five million truckers that are going to be off the road. An energy transition provides such a great opportunity to become leading battery manufacturers and become hydrogen producers, and gives our the economy the refresh it needs after you know nineteen nineties two thousand solar sold to China to make things. I completely agree with you, but I would say this in my experience as an old fella. 
the energy company is going to, whatever you come up with, the energy companies are going to own it because they're the only people, first of all, they already have the means to deliver it, whatever it is. They have the rights away, they have the pipes, they have, even if you want to deliver electricity in a new way, they got the way to do it. You want to refine, you think it's a big step for them to refine hydrogen <laughs> or, or, or one thing or another? It's not. And if you want to move that hydrogen from factory A to city B, They'll just put the hydrogen through the pipes instead of oil and gas. It's pretty simple. They already have the corners where you can, you know, put the hydrogen in your hydrogen vehicle instead of gas. It'll all work out for them. And and so that's why I think they're not in like this. There aren't these, there aren't a lot of guys, a lot of smart guys throwing a lot of money at this problem because I think there's a certain sense of inevitability that these guys the exons of the world are going to end up, end up the winner in this particular pursuit. Now, I see the smile on your face. <laughs> like, no, nah, that can't be it. This, there has to be a good side to this. And there may, may very well be. I hope it does work out. But I don't know. Unless there's a, I mean, there needs to be something like really a, a, a seminal change to, to bring it about, you know? Yep. I mean, yep. I would love to have an electric car, but unfortunately, my son, <laughs> my son lives three hundred miles away from me, and there isn't one that'll get me there. Well, so, now the new, the new, the new Model S will get you. I think it's four hundred and two. Maybe it's four hundred and twenty, which is probably more likely, given it, it's a Musk product. But yeah, it gets you that many miles. Get you there. Uh, charged up on a supercharger 30 minutes turned around back home and and in my former fancy life i might have had a handful of those cars but <laughs> now that i'm just now that i'm not living that fancy life anymore i'll just buy some gas and drive i got more i got time <laughs> i don't know <laughs> and isn't there something yeah see i still have like the memory i love the sound of a hot car I do. I love that to hear that engine roar and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> to, to have a to have a soundless car zooming down the street just seems like what's the point of it? I know it's good for the world. It's all that's that's all good, but you know, you know, I love cars. So yeah, I, the other day I went to a. I was in Albuquerque. I went to the Porsche dealership and I sat in their new Taycan. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he's like, here, press this button. And it, it sounds like uh, a normal car. And so it, it, it makes a, a muffler noises. Like it, you know, it sounds like there's an engine in it while you're driving it around, which I thought was fascinating because they have to make, it's all fake, but it creates the, it creates that nostalgia that. Well, it's kind of like perfume. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but do you know that car? I mean, so I, I happen to be, uh, I happened to be somewhere the other day, and and the the Tycon they call it the Tycan something like that. Tycon something like that. And and it parked it parked next to me the other day, and I was like, "Is that the that's the electric car, isn't it?" And I said, "Yeah." I said, "Do you love it? It's pretty cool." He said, "It's fast as hell. You just can't imagine how fast it is." I said, "Yeah." Is there anything wrong with it? He said, "It's so freaking heavy. It weighs like nine thousand pounds." because the batteries and everything. But he says, it's a great car and I can only go 200 miles, but it's okay. But I can go really fast when I want to. And he loved the car. But there was like, and it's got, I said, well, what about, you know, do you have room to store? He says, I got nothing, but I got a trunk in the front and the trunk in the back. It's great. 
So it's also like $140,000, I think. But who knows? So they just came out with they want to they want to break into the Tesla range. So they just brought one out. Starts at seventy nine thousand. Not nearly as cool. Well, you better work your way up into that. You know, thirty two percent on one side of the curve that works out <laughs> <laughs> for that kind of stuff. I mean, it's yes, it's great, but I don't know if that works our way out of it. I mean, and you know, where are they going to make them? <laughs> you know, you know Charleston. I drive by that. I, uh, you know, almost every day I go over the bridge from Charleston and and look at where all those all those freaking BMWs and Saab and, and Volvos are parked in that lot, getting ready to be shipped all over the world. They're mostly to Europe, I guess. Like every SCU, SUV that BMW and Volvo make go out of Charleston. It's a mountain of cars. Thousands and thousands every day. I mean, good jobs. Good yeah, jobs. They, they, they make all them. I think they make them uh, somewhere north of Spartanburg. There's it's like the X3 and the X5 plant. Yes. And then they take they put them on a train. It's really the be- a beautiful supply chain thing. They put them on the train. Well, first of all, they have. Of course, there are car manufacturers. They have like the just-in-time manufacturing plant where I remember I was in school, they're talking about how the seats for the cars flow in and like right as that car is opening its its doors to have the seats put in, like, you know, it's all micro time there. Uh, and then it goes onto the train and it goes to the port and then the boat takes it to Europe and then it gets off there, goes on another train, goes to, you know, Munich or whatever, but it's a really beautiful thing. And, uh, you and know, all, all those jobs are there in the, in the heart of South Carolina. And Michelin's, I mean, Michelin's got a big factory. Everybody's got a big factory up there supporting that whole thing. And there's like a whole economic boom going on up there, which is a good. There's a free trade zone, which is what, which what it is. There's like a free trade area. Have you ever remember driving up that highway? There's a sign that says free trade, economic free, something like that. Well, that's just where you get the park stuff. Yeah. You just get the park stuff in and out and not pay duty on it for that little bit. You know, it depends. But I mean. The whole world is, for all intents and purposes, a free trade zone. I mean, there's no there's no real taxes or duties going on anything that would that would really stop somebody. When I was a youngin, when I was a young man trying to make my way in the life, I mean, truth be told, now I I made clothes in my life. When I brought a when I brought a man's shirt or a woman's blouse into the United States in the seventies and eighties, there was a thirty one percent duty on some of those things. And some of them had like by cotton kind plus, plus a cotton content or whatever, polyester content, it would go, it could go up. And in the case of wool and things like that would go up by weight. And I mean, now you, the duties are negligible. The, the cost vary, the cost differentiation between buying it in one country versus trying to buy it here is you may as well pay whatever the duty is, you're better off. But I don't know what that means. I don't know what the point of that is, but yeah. Well, I, I was I'm, I'm in a class right now, international political economy. I'm studying this trade, you know, uh, openness of economies and and what that means for politics and everything. And so during your time, uh, that time, the period of time when you you came up, the United States was in a position to to be the most open uh, economy in the world and to, to foster that around the world. They gave birth to globalization. 
But people say that now that's uh, the United States is kind of on a, a decline or a relative decline to other world powers like China. The world is going to become more closed. It's going to become more multipolar. And you might have seen that in the last couple of years with our trade policy. Tariffs have gone up. Uh, uh, national security uh, restrictions on trade, like um, wasn't it aluminum during the Trump administration was a thing. You know, there's the, the, the world economy is coming more closed. It's very interesting. Well, there's a lot of seminal products like that that you need. I mean, like, you know, cement is cement used to be made in every country by itself. I mean, nobody imported cement and steel and things like that. They had their own steel industry or cement industry or whatever. But today it all comes in from other countries, you know, other places. It's uh, because there's such there's such a wage gap between, you know, the cost of labor in one country and the cost of labor in this country. And the desire of people, I mean, what do you do? What do you do if like a generation, a number of people say, thank you very much. I just don't want to work in a steel mill. Not doing it. Not doing that. Go to work at seven in the morning, stay there till five, carry a lunch bag and have those freaking at that hot furnace and stuff. Ain't going to do it. I mean, then... We'll say, well, what would you like to do? Well, I don't know, but I'm not doing this. And then eventually you have a factory with you can't, you know, I mean, they're very, you have to be, everybody, I mean, I don't know that people understand that there's a certain economy to a factory. A fa- factories that don't work within a very small tolerance of their peak capacity aren't profitable. And then it doesn't make any sense to run the factory. So if you, if, if a factory, if a factory's budgeted to run, you know, Two, two shifts, two eight, 10 hour shifts, and it can only run one, its output is going to be half as much and it doesn't make any sense to run the factory. So, I mean, we've also come up with, I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of factory people and manufacturing people get blamed for, you know, not wanting to have unions and this, that, and the other thing. And there's a certain, there's a lot of truth to that too, but there's also a lot of truth that people just didn't want to work in those factories anymore. They just didn't want to do it. And it was hard work. And it was, but I think it wasn't hard work if you'd been to World War II and, and you know, and, and you wanted to come back and, and were hell driven to, to build this great new country and new life for yourself. It's a real whole psychographic thing. That it's like the world in, cycle. Yeah, we're in like a whole different place now. And I don't know that that, and I mean, you know, you know, I'm a great, I'm a believer in the memo. I mean, somebody sends out a memo and everybody reads it and then they all start behaving the same way. And I think that there was a memo that went out it said, you know, we're not going to do this anymore and to hell with it. It's just going to be the way it is. And it, somehow it actually takes place. But after World War II, those, you know, all those people coming back from the war got the men, you know, I mean, all, I mean, my God, they came back. They, they built houses and subdivisions. They moved into subdivisions. They worked in enormous factories. They built, they built the state of California. There was kind of nothing to it. They built all sorts of stuff. You know, they, they, they kind of made Texas from like this agrarian kind of thing to this like oil patch thing with mammoth, mammoth refineries and factories and stuff like that that spew God knows what into the air. But it was all in the, you know, they thought they were doing it. It was all part of they just continued that value structure that led them all off to go to war and fight. 
to now they were home and they were all going to build this great country. And one can say in large measure they did. And we're going to, we're going to credit Tom Brokaw, the, the newsman, with coining that phrase for them. And I'm a little disappointed that I'm not going to, my generation is not going to be written down as the greatest generation. We may end up being the richest generation. Well, yeah. <laughs> but we're not leaving behind very much, quite frankly, other than the stuff, the, the stuff that we've consumed. We're really good at that. We're really good consumers. And we've, We've led, we've led a lot of others to be, you know, we've kind of taught, taught people how fun consuming is and stuff like that. But it's a short buzz, I guess. It's a short buzz and it's it, got, it, it, it costs something. Yeah. I mean, you know, so, I mean, it's just to me that the, the curve of how that goes on is really interesting and yet not discussed. I mean, I, the, we're, the, the, we're, we're here to, and we're here to discuss it. Yeah, that, that's kind of what, what the point is of, of at least this inaugural episode is to take us forward into, you know, talking it out between generations, how we how I see it and uh, and how you see it, uh, but in an intellectual way. Which I think is a really good thing. I mean, I, I think that because neither one of us, I think I think while we have strong ideological thoughts, they're not like didactic. And uh, it's really kind of more observational. And is there a better way? Isn't there a better way? I think we both come to the to the end of the thing. Is you know, is there a better way to do stuff? I mean, socially, I have a very I have a very very narrow narrow focus. Can the little kids read? <laughs> can can you walk down the street and be safe? And if something happens to you, can you get to see a great doctor? Other than that, don't talk to me until you've taken care of those three things as a politician. I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> I'm just not interested. You know, you don't get to dabble in like 45 different things. I mean, I can't even believe some of the shit they come up with that they're going to talk about now. But yes, and I think that that's, I don't know. Yes, that's what I would like to really talk about. So I hope you all will come back and listen to us more because we're really kind of in this together, all of us, in just a way to find out how to make the world a better place, a kinder place, a more inhabitable place. We may have different points of view as to how we're going to do it, but I think at the end of the day, it's important that the children have a wonderful world to grow up in. And a, and a life that they can raise a family in safely, healthily, and uh, with a smile on their face. And as long as we – and I think that Peter and I are very different. He's young, I'm old. He's thin, I'm fat. <laughs> you know, I've seen a lot. He's just starting out on the journey. And yet, I think we have a sense of, of, of affinity for our points of view. And we've learned a great deal from one another over what, the last eight years now or something? Six or eight, yeah, ten six, years? Seven, seven, six, something. It's incredible. So, And we enjoy each other's company. We'd kind of like to share it with you. That's all. Right, Peter? That's all. Yeah, you know? absolutely. 
So Absolutely. we will get better at this. We'll get more organized or not. <laughs> and hopefully we'll tell better stories in time and make you laugh a little bit. But we don't want to, we, we don't want to, I think, get you all jacked up. We don't want to be the algorithm that all of a sudden feeds you into some direction that you didn't know you were going or want to go. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. With only the best intentions, right? But I guess we probably need to look around that corner and see if there's unintended consequences. As long as we don't get canceled, at least you can get canceled because you're at the, you're at the, I, you're towards the end there. Been, <laughs> I'm I've young. Been, I'm starting out. I'm not towards the end. I am the end. <laughs> I, I am the end. Okay, so this has been fun. It's been fun for me, and we'll fun try it me. again. And maybe, All right. maybe somebody will come and listen to it. In the meantime. <laughs> we have belts to sell and stuff, but that's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> All right. Talk to you later. Bye.